Today on the Daily Scoop, sponsored by Zoom for Government, a handoff at the top of the Pentagon's digital office. This is why DDS was created. DDS isn't sort of the organization of record that's going to create these technologies and scale them and then provide them to everyone across the Department of Defense. They're really sort of a test bed. Suzette Kent on handling the cash explosion at the Technology Modernization Fund. I hope agencies are looking at that as a way to accelerate all the things that you know they're supposed to be doing anyway. And Customs and Border Protection beats a big deadline, CBP's CIO explains. We include sort of app rationalization, defining the architecture, and then prioritizing the low risk to the high complexity applications. It's Monday, September 13th, 2021. Welcome to the very first ever Daily Scoop podcast, sponsored by Zoom for Government. Every afternoon at 4 o'clock, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. A new innovation steering group will improve innovation at the Pentagon, according to Deputy Secretary of Defense Kath Hicks. Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering Heidi Hsu will lead the group. The group's first initiative will provide money for technology that advances joint concepts like joint all-domain command and control. The Commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service says his agency needs more money from Congress to cover its IT funding shortage. Commissioner Charles Reddick writes in a letter to senators that his agency took $200 million from enforcement accounts and $400 million in user fees to cover the shortage last fiscal year. Reddick warns in the letter he'll have to take more, quote, extraordinary measures if Congress doesn't give the agency more money. The Defense Digital Service will transfer counter-drone technology it developed to the Air Force. Billy Mitchell's editor-in-chief of FedScoop. He's writing about the transfer at fedscoop.com. Billy, welcome. Thanks for joining me in the Daily Scoop podcast. What is the technology that the Air Force is getting from the Defense Digital Service? Welcome. Sure, Francis. Thanks for having me, and uh, great to be working with you. So what the Defense Digital Service is sending to the Air Force Research Lab is what it's calling counter-small UAS sensing tech. And what that means is it's technology really used to detect these small drones, really these hobby drones that you see in the commercial space but are becoming popular in militarized uh, operations. Um, And being able to detect them um, as they're flying around battle space, but also these small drones um, are used in homeland scenarios uh, here here uh, in the U.S. So um, it's become a powerful tool for the Defense Digital Service. You, you've seen them use it in battle space, in militarized operations, but also um, in times like in the early days of the pandemic when there were two naval floating hospitals uh, outside of New York City and L.A. Hobbyists wanted to get a better picture of that and sort of take pictures of this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, but obviously that causes some concerns uh, for, for those naval ships, uh, it's kind of an invasion of airspace and, and sort of a threat. So DDS helped out in, in detecting those and sort of tracking them. And it's really that technology now that it's sending over to the Air Force Research Lab to kind of give it new legs and give it a new home and hopefully scale it up a bit. You write in this piece, the transition comes after the two organizations signed a memorandum of understanding in April to collaborate on counter SUAS work. What's the big deal about this technology transfer beyond what the technology itself does, Billy? So I think it, it's twofold. It, it For DDS, this is why DDS was created. DDS isn't sort of the organization of record that's going to create these technologies and scale them and then provide them to everyone across the Department of Defense. They're really sort of a test bed 
to pilot things, inject innovation into the, the Pentagon and other military organizations, and then show them that once it's operational, uh, we can maybe give it to you and then you could scale it with your resources. So this is a win for DDS. That's what it was created to do, uh, to, to sort of show that this is possible. And then for the Air Force Research Lab, um, we've seen the AFRL do a lot of work in the past year trying to uh, issue a request for proposals earlier this year um, worth $490 million so that it can uh, kind of develop this uh, counter SUAS technology. And this is a big win because it now has a, a proven operational program under that portfolio that it can further scale. So I think it's win-win on both sides. Billy Mitchell, Editor-in-Chief at FedScoop. Thanks very much. You can read more about that story and all the latest headlines at FedScoop.com. Coming later on the Daily Scoop podcast, former Federal Chief Information Officer Suzette Kent on handling the cash explosion at the Technology Modernization Fund. First, though, that fund has a new leader. Raylene Young is the Biden administration's choice to lead the TMF's Program Management Office. Tracy Walker is executive director of the Digital Services Coalition. She's former director of digital service procurement at the U.S. Digital Service. She's writing about digital acquisition on Medium. Her views there are her own. Tracy, welcome. It's great to see you again. Raylene Young will have a lot of acquisition issues on the table in front of her, and you're, that's exactly what you're writing about. You write this. The unwillingness of the government to adapt its acquisition behaviors deters most companies as few are willing to jump through the hoops. Why do you use unwillingness instead of inability, Tracy? Welcome. Hi, nice to uh, see you and, and thank you for having me here. Kind of specifically in the digital service industry, it's really set up for the speed of technology and the government is not always at that same pace. So when you're looking at acquisition, the government has kind of moved at that slower pace, so the tech industry has moved farther beyond that. So unwillingness is more about saying, like, now we have to kind of take a step back. And that's where some of the partners are looking to say, okay, we have to work with older or outdated technologies. And then we have to be hit with a lot of well-intentioned restrictions and complicated bureaucracy that kind of prevents us from getting something out the door, which is what we really, really want to do. Like digital service con companies are not looking to really camp out in government contracts. They want to solve a problem, help an end user, fulfill a mission, rebuild a process, and then get on to the next one. They get excited by what's new and around the bend. And so sometimes that kind of uh, mentality doesn't mesh well with the government um, mindset around adopting technology and especially in the government acquisition standpoint. You use a term in this piece called anti-fragile acquisition, and you write, introducing anti-fragility in government acquisition will require humanizing the contracting process. What's that look like, Tracy? Anti-fragility um, is a term that was coined by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, and it basically is a property of systems which increases their capability to thrive as a result of stressor shocks and failures. And when you think about humans and our bodies as well, we're an anti-fragile system. If you break a bone, it usually grows back stronger. If you work out and, and you know lift weights, the muscles break down and they become stronger. Um, at the same as well as how we deal with life. Life is made up of chaos and uncertainty. So we have to think through that when we're applying that kind of a concept to contracts and the methods through which we look at how to get companies, how we actually are making them behave and um, work on a contract and looking at it through that lens of, this is a human problem that we're thinking about and not just a paperwork exercise, which a lot of government is trying to build up the risk um, ahead of time and saying, 
we're going to create a contract that's going to be perfect and nothing's going to go wrong is just something that doesn't exist in the world. Like it, there is no contract that ever does that. And yet every single time we go back to the contracting drawing board, we try to do exactly that. So anti-fragility is saying instead of that, try to build a system that is purposely going to break and be challenged by the chaos, but it's going to become stronger once you actually put it together and put it into place. All right, you've got six items in this piece, and we don't have time to talk about all of them, but there's a couple in particular I want to mm -hmm. ask you about. The first one is describing the problem and letting industry describe the solution. I know for a fact there are a lot of acquisition people and a lot of technology people in government that would love to be able to do this, and we've not been able to crack this nut for as long as I've been paying attention, 15 years. What's the holdup at this point, Tracy? A couple things. I mean, I, some of it is just not going back to our contracting roots. Performance-based contracting is based on the idea that you build an objective and then you ask industry how to solve it. So that's something that we've been trying to do in government for a long time and have the methods to do it. We're just kind of getting away from that where we're being overly prescriptive, trying to drive too much of the solution because we think we know what we want or what our end users want. And as digital service products are built, time and time again, that has been proven incorrect, that you don't know what your end users want until you give them something, let them try it, and then they tell you what works or what doesn't work. So the idea of sitting behind um, the wall and saying, okay, we're gonna build all the requirements, we're gonna come up with the solution, and all you have to do industry is just put that into place. Well, first of all, technologists and government um, that have that kind of knowledge are, are kind of you know, few and far between. So we have to leverage industry expertise in order to kind of get to those solutions in general. And, and then looking at that and saying, well, industry is, they know best about what the technology trends are. They know best about what the solutions can be. And they know how to ask the questions that we don't even know what and how to ask. And trying to say that in a contract locks us down, which means that as soon as we start getting, you know, as soon as the government starts working on it, it's gonna to have to start modifying it or it's gonna to have to start redoing what they just thought that they needed. So not really building in the idea that a solution can be built, you know, piece by piece, information by information, and actually have a solution that, and that's how the things that we normally are dealing with in a normal day are built on our, our smartphones, in technology expertise, like that's, that's kind of what we deal with every day, but we don't apply it to government. And I haven't figured out why we don't, so it's just kind of calling that out, saying we're still not doing it. The second item on of your six is championing your end users, and you talked about end users a moment ago, so we'll leave that one as it is. The third is inclusive accessibility is for all. Why is it necessary to even mention that, Tracy? Especially, I think, in today's environment where you have so many people that have the ability to access uh, government solutions through technology, um, they're looking for ways to to use the test technology, but a lot of times government solutions are still looking at 508 compliance or accessibility as somewhat afterthoughts or things that they don't build in from the very beginning. So um, design practices and design principles need to think through that from the very beginning instead of saying, okay, we're almost ready to launch our project, our product. Has anybody done the 508 testing? And instead of it being a forward front thinking, um, upfront being like, what are we going to do to make sure that everybody can use the system um, and not just something that says, okay, we're about ready to launch it. Now we need to like tack in a few things or change a few colors to make it accessible. Like it's really just bringing that in and part making it part of the entire process. 
the fourth item is build shock absorbers to failure. This one and number six, which we'll talk about in a moment, seem to me to be the hardest ones. For government, at least, Tracy. <laughs> it is. Um, I mean, when you're thinking about what you, you can't anticipate far in the future, um, especially, you know, in government, you know, mentality and things like that. We try to put in, they try to put in contracts that are like a base plus four years. Well, you know, you can't predict everything that's going to happen. So when you talk about shock absorbers to failure, you put in practice and frameworks around how you're going to deal with solutions up front and then allow that process to actually work. And as things come at you, you have a much better environment in order to take on those problems than you do with the mentality that we're not going to have problems. Um, it, almost the denial mentality. Things aren't going to go wrong uh, because we set it up so well in the beginning. That's never happened. And so it's saying, what is going to be, how do we minimize risk? How do we start small? How do we fail fast? How do we make a mistake and learn from it? And that goes back to humanizing the contracting process. We all make mistakes. We know we learn more from our mistakes than we do from our successes sometimes. So let's start making those mistakes fast. And as we make those mistakes, then the stronger solution comes out through that. Um, number five is everyone responsible for success must have skin in the game. I think that one's fairly self-evident, Tracy. So we move to number six, which, as I said, it is to me probably as difficult for government as an outside ob uh, observer. Been watching this for a while uh, as the building the shock absorbers to failure for exactly the reason you just mentioned, by the way. And this one is channeling chaos and disorder into ruthless prioritization and efficiency. And the reason I thought this one was hard when I read this, Tracy, is the same reason. It requires acknowledging that this process is going to be somewhat chaotic, that we might not have our arms wrapped around the whole thing the entire time. And a lot of times when you go and talk to um, the legal counsel and the people who are putting things out, it's an uncomfortable position for people to be in. So that's kind of where the one that we referenced before that says everyone has skin in the game. This is where you actually put that into the contract and you write that into there and say, basically, we need to go back to what our North Star is and have everybody on the team understand that what we need to do is prioritize getting this done. So all the other noise that happens on a contract, all the other problems that come up, the things that delay, um, all those things are anticipated, but are they serving the primary mission or goal of what that contract is? And if the answer is yes, then you figure out how to work towards getting that solution resolved. And if the answer is no, then it is, again, just background noise that you might find some other way or some other way to prioritize or think through a little bit differently. But black swans, I talk about this, they're the unpredictable events. They are going to come along. So understanding and having everybody pointing back to that North Star helps recenter everybody and say, I know we're really having a problem with this, but it's going to be really important to help a veteran get a benefit, or it's going to be really important to help people understand what is the process, you know, where are their unemployment loans. Those are the things that act more, that are more important. So figuring out the solution in the weeds may require going back to that, having everybody take a deep breath and then kind of rediving back in to make sure that those objectives and the solution is what you actually need. When you kind of go back to that, those problems, the big ones, they kind of fade away and you can really focus in on what is the most important thing that needs to get done today in order to push that mission forward. Tracy Walker, formerly of the U.S. Digital Service, thanks very much for coming on the program today. Later on today's Daily Scoop podcast, Customs and Border Protection beats a big deadline. CBP's CIO will tell you what it was and how his team did it. 
Today's Daily Scoop podcast is sponsored by Zoom for Government, designed with relevant certifications and ATOs for the federal hybrid workforce. Learn more at karasoft.com slash Zoom. The latest legislation the House Appropriations Committee has passed only includes $50 million for the Technology Modernization Fund, but the TMF board has a billion dollars it can award from the American Rescue Plan Act. Suzette Kent is former Federal Chief Information Officer. At lunch on Friday, I asked her if she might be a little jealous about the money the board has to work with today. I certainly am. I know I had a conversation with someone said, I'm thrilled, I'm excited, and yes, a little bit jealous because there's so much opportunity. I also like the fact that they've put additional resources in to move the process faster, to make it um, less less painful, I'll say, for, for the agencies. Um, and you looked at what the payback looks like and a little bit more creative around that. So it, it, it's thrilling. And I would, you know, I'd love to be on the wall to see all the projects that are coming in. And I hope agencies are looking at that as a way to accelerate all the things that, you know, they're supposed to be doing anyway. And whether that's digital or, you know, cyber or, you know, some of the large scale modernizations. I, one of the first projects actually just finished and I talked to someone uh, who's one of the project managers and... It's thrilling to see them go through the cycle and be successful. Mm-hmm. So the model's been proven out, agencies have been successful, and there's a lot of money. So I'm, I'm excited about watching what's going to happen, and I hope that even though there's so much going on, that agencies still prioritize that as an important funding source. Do you think the way of evaluating projects, of evaluating proposals, should change given that there's a lot more money? No. On the part of the board, not the part of the agency submitting um, proposals. No, with one one small caveat. The rules of the TMF are laid down in law, right? Which, and the focus areas remain the same. What this funding did was kind of double down on areas of citizen services and cybersecurity and loosened up some of the concepts of payback. And, and that was the one hard thing with some types of things, like cybersecurity. You know, some projects, the clear payback was clear. You had to have the CFO, you know, in there, and you had to agree on the spend and the payback. It's a little bit harder sometimes um, with some of the infrastructure investments. And so the evaluation of, does it follow the law? Does it hit the areas that we need to be focused on? And, and does it deliver measurable benefits? That shouldn't change. The fact that it's a little bit more mature and there's ways that we can run the process, you know, cleaner mm-hmm. <laughs> and faster. Um, those are the improvements I hope they bring, and I hope they look at what payback means, um, less in terms of just dollars and cents, and more in terms of total value delivered. Mm-hmm. So that means then it sounds like it would make sense for these projects to fit into things like the zero trust draft strategy that just came out and those kinds of things. So we would should expect to see, shouldn't we, a different type of proposal submitted from the agencies, if the agencies are thinking about it the right way. But possibly. Um, and and I and I'll pick something out of the, you know, zero trust model. There were a couple of things around um, consolidated sign on. There was a directive on multi factor authentication. First of all, 
that's been out there for a long time. Mm -hmm. Agencies should be there, but let's just say they're not right. Those are ways to, to move, you know, potentially move quickly there. But there is also a challenge for um, to, to choose one application that's internet accessible and kind of bring it up to um, where it needs to be from a cybersecurity perspective. It's a very diplomatic way of saying But that's a chance to modernize in the end. It's a great place to use the TMF. You can highly, you know, likely show benefits. You can comply with a directive and modernize, you know, a, a legacy application. And if you choose the right one, you know, I hope agencies don't look at that, you know, you have to do one and go pick the simplest. Right. <laughs> but I hope they pick something that's meaningful for citizen services or for enabling their workforce, like what helps us have a more flexible workforce and do things, you know, differently from home. They have a chance to, to wrap all that, you know, together. And so I kind of got excited when I thought about the funding that's available and the directives, you know, that sit under the TMF with the objectives and the timing of the things that are under both the Cyber EO and specifically the Zero Trust Directive. Mm -hmm. We were talking a little bit before I turned the recorder on, and I said, you really are just, it seems to me, as engaged now in all of these topics as you were when you were CIO. Why is that? What are you doing now that you're out of government that drives you to still be so connected and know what's in the zero trust draft <laughs> strategy and all that jazz? Well, thanks for asking that. And Francis, it's the same. It's the things I cared about before I was the federal CIO. It's the things I still I cared about then, and I still care about those. Um, and I'm working with, now I have the chance to choose the companies that I work with. Um, and I can choose those who are running fast and bringing new technology, whether it's in workforce development, whether it's in cybersecurity, whether it's digital. Um, I'm working with a number of universities and alternative training paths to improve our technical capabilities and diversity across you know, our workforces. And those, those are the things that I love to do. And you know, at the simplest, I'm a citizen. And I have really high expectations for what I expect from our government. And so um, those are the things that now I was always involved in from the commercial side. Mm -hmm. And now I'm involved in both commercial and government. And places where um, I know we need to accelerate, like I said, in, in cyber, in digital you know, transformation, um, there's companies out there that have great ideas and great products in those spaces, and I am excited to work with them. Um, and more importantly, as they see success, whether it's in federal or state and local or in commercial, those are, again, proof points and data that we can bring forward. And I'll, I'll say the last thing, I, uh, my, my passion for data hadn't changed. I'm even doing some of that voluntary wow. <laughs> working with the Coleridge Initiative. Um, for how we actually put value around federal data. We've made some, you know, great strides. And I love seeing what the CDO Council is doing and, you know, the, the, the kind of we're hitting dates on the Evidence Act and, and the federal data strategy is, you know, the continuing forward, you know, under, under this federal CIO and team. But the outcomes that, that we're getting are proving the importance 
we still have to up that game and move faster. So if we're going to have be able to leverage automation and AI and all the things that we can do, you know, with technology and and deliver, you know, mobile and better, we have to still make that investment in the data. So all the things I cared about, I'm still playing in all those spaces, and I'm glad I get to see you too. Suzette Kent, former Chief Information Officer of the United States. You can read more about the House Appropriations Committee's plan for the TMF at fedscoop.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, sponsored by Zoom for Government, rich and high-reliability audio and video so you can work through complex issues and build rapport across government with mission partners and engaging the public. Learn more at karasoft.com Zoom. You learned about the tech transfer at the Defense Digital Service earlier in our program. On Tuesday's Daily Scoop podcast, the director of the Defense Digital Service, Katie Olson, will tell you what it means and why she thinks it's a big deal. Tuesday's Daily Scoop podcast debuts at 4 p.m. at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. And you can learn who's coming on the show by following at Daily Scoop Pod on Twitter. Customs and Border Protection's ahead of the goals it set for itself to migrate applications to the cloud, but the job ahead will get tougher because of the assets the agency still has to move. Sonny Bagawali is Assistant Commissioner in the Office of Information Technology and Chief Information Officer at Customs and Border Protection. He's a FedScoop 50 2021 nominee. Sonny, welcome. It's great to see you, my friend. How did you get ahead of schedule, and how do you plan to stay ahead of schedule? Yeah, I think, uh, thanks, Francis. Uh, good to see you. Uh, uh, the main thing is, of course, as you know, we use a framework of people, policy, process, technology, and governance, and you've got to have all five things work together to make this successful. So we uh, we had everyone together, and of course, a uh, little bit of, you throw in a little bit of leadership as well, so that everyone is working. And the leadership doesn't just mean the top person, it means everyone together. Uh, we had a common goal. Uh, we first utilized a multifaceted approach. We include sort of app rationalization, defining the architecture, and then prioritizing the low risk to the high complexity applications. So which ones are the first to modernize and migrate easier? Then sort of go with, uh, you know, as you get confident and that works, then go to the second batch and then the third batch to migrate. That was one thing. As part of the cloud strategy, I d- identified a requirement to establish a cloud center of excellence, uh, CCOE, to, to, to enable consistency across the cloud uh, migration activities, promote industry-driven and proven best practices commensurate with delivering the mission focus to CBP's officers and agents. Uh, you know my background in cloud when uh, we started this journey in 2009. So 12 years later, I think uh, we've seen cloud sort of emerge, you know, after Vivek's uh, first uh, thing on cloud. So cloud first, cloud smart, and, uh, you know, cloud forever, I guess. Uh, so we're, we're sort of implementing that. So this uh, center of excellence, the cloud center of excellence created a dashboard which provides visibility into this application portfolio. And then this dashboard enables all levels of management to access real-time migration schedules, risks and issues, funding requirements, FISMA required security authorization, and sort of a granular approach to managing the specific areas of mission. And then when we all saw it together and the dashboard was open, available in, the, in regular meetings every week, uh, you know, everyone got together and got on board and just said, hey, let's do it and let's make it happen. And uh, that's how we got ahead of it. That cloud forever comment, it's funny the way that you put it, Sonny, but it also is meaningful because if you're continuing to drive this effort and you have, as you said recently, the remaining applications that you have because they're higher value assets will be harder to move, that's important, isn't it, to 
the way that you think about what your cloud migration effort looks like five years from now or 10 years from now. It's not just a matter of whatever the next cloud strategy is that comes from the administration. Absolutely. You're spot on, right? As you know, uh, you know, we are sort of not buzzword compliant. You know, we, we try to invest in things that are slow and steady and play for the long term uh, sort of benefits of that. And you have to have a method and a, and, a, and a methodology to kind of make things happen. And you're absolutely right. That's what we're trying to do to kind of focus on uh, slow and steady wins the race. But once you have that foundation to build upon, you know, the whole process, policy, people, governance, all that works together. And I think in concert, that's why I said technology is just one of those five components. I appreciate that you're not buzzword compliant, but I do want to ask you about some of the buzzwords that people are talking about in government IT today. One of them is artificial intelligence. You have just stood up an AI center of innovation. What is that? How did you build it? And what is the goal? What do you want to deliver for CBP? Yeah, so in concert with obviously cloud, there are multiple efforts concurrently uh, going on. We've established a CBP AI Center of Innovation, a COI, to act as a central hub for working across the organization on enterprise processes, tools, and infrastructure. And these are all necessary to develop, test, and deploy AI at the speed of mission. So we need solutions at the speed of mission because we have a lot of work that, uh, you know, can we make things look faster and better? So, you know, faster, better, right? and more affordable. So I think the COI is intended to centrally govern, support, and report on AI capability deployment, uh, you know, training data management, because, you know, AI is nothing without data. So making sure the curation of the data and making sure that availability of the data is, is sort of a, I'll use the symbiotic word. I guess we're going to have to use some words uh, from <laughs> before. But symbiotic uh, sort of a way to make things happen. We also have to standardize metadata. I mean, you know my background on data.gov and other things and big data that we've worked on. It's all metadata standardization and, and also ethics. Let's not forget about governance. AI is about ethical aspects that also need to be looked at. You know, what is really before you un unleash this uh, uh, this technology? Uh, uh, unveil slash unleash, I guess. Initially, the COI's primary function will be data engineering projects such as data cleansing, data quality, and data annotation. We also use an outcome-based community approach that is focused on awareness, education, and collaboration. So what we're trying to do is bring the whole CBP community together on this journey to use AI for the most complex missions. And once we publish that site, there are more best practices, lessons learned so that people can learn from each other and on the internet. And so I think this collaborative approach is like a, sort of like a service-oriented approach. Remember that, SOA? But this is more like a service-oriented approach in terms of services, microservices, and things that we need to do to implement this. And so we're working, obviously, Agile SDLC, about like 40 concurrent software app teams. And, and, and again, working in an Agile manner to incorporate AI into a specific mission outcome. So we also embed our agents and officers with us. So that's really important because they know the mission best, right? So when our IT folks are sitting with them side by side, we can look at from their aspect what's working and not working. Also legal policy analysts from the front office officers, so they are also sitting with us. So I think this sort of team approach all together embedded in an agile with service orientation and collaboration has been key. And of course, in the age of COVID, all of this working with remote, uh, remote work and collaboration has been key. And I think what it's, it's doing is it's enabling the workforce to make solutions. And it doesn't have to be the CIO office that solves all this problem. That's the other thing. It can be the programs. So as we deliver more com computational power and how to teach them how to fish, pretty much our thing is govern it, register it, and do it. You've got a center of excellence online now, too, for robotics process automation. Does standing up a COI, COE look the same? And does the process that you followed to do that 
work the same way each time? Is Are there like best practices to do that, Sonny? Yes, yes. So in robotic process automation, actually, so on AI, I've got like 40 projects going on and in RPA, I've got like 110. So it's it's amazing what's happening. But RPA, yes, it's a very similar sort of a concept, but it has to have a foundation upon which, for example, in our case, we have uh, uh, teamed up with the uh, innovation office, which is in the commissioner's office, working with our team. My, my chief technology officer runs that. And then we bring everyone together. And once they see examples of what everyone is doing, it, it builds a sense of team. It builds a sense of, uh, you know, I guess I'm getting ready for the Ryder Cup, those pods, <laughs> which allows, I never thought I would bring Ryder Cup into IT, but there we go. You know, you got you to gotta work people in pods so they can all work together as teams and then communities of interest. And when that happens, it really takes off. And when people see successful examples, and we've got a lot of successful examples, it sort of builds an energy and, and an execution uh, confidence that can parlay into uh, you know a force multiplier. How do you measure that success? Is it as simple as we tried to build this thing and this thing worked, or is it more complex than that, Sonny? I, I think uh, it's a combination. I, I think uh, obviously it's uh, you know can we make things more efficient, faster? Yeah, uh, are we making it easier, better? Uh, Affordability also comes into play as, you know, this year has been somewhat challenging in terms of uh, fee collection and so on and so forth. But the mission continues. You know, we all are, we are a sort of the largest law enforcement agency. So we have a tremendous global mission 24-7 and, and uh, on, every, on every front, you just have to find ways to innovate. You just can't stay still, you know. So I think from that standpoint, those measures are being defined in concert with our partners and trusted partnership. There's another program that we've started called Trusted Partnership Initiative. And what it is, is we don't treat our stakeholders as customers. We treat them as trusted partners because, you know, a customer has a choice. So we want to make sure that we get their feedback regularly. Is, is this working? Is that working? And, and or here's a capability that we have. And they're like, this is great. And what that has done is it brought a new sense of uh, teamwork, uh, uh, visibility and transparency, and frankly, uh, uh, amazing level of adoption for our efforts. Sonny Bagwalia, the Chief Information Officer at Customs and Border Protection. Thanks very much for joining me today, Sonny. Several federal agencies are targeting October to bring employees back to their offices, at least part of the time. This year's Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey shows employees like working in a hybrid environment. Stephen Ellis is Government Solutions Lead at Zoom for Government. Stephen, thanks very much for joining me today. What's your take on how agencies should be preparing now for what is definitely going to be a hybrid work environment, no matter what happens and when people start to come back to the office? And that's just it. Uh, it it's funny, the, the, the last part of what you said, no matter what happens, you know, we've gone through gas shortages, we had a tornado, We've, uh, we've gone through quite a bit of things that forget about any kind of pandemic or disease or, or variant or what have you. Uh, we're talking about, it seems that there's a renewed awareness that there's going to be a constant stream of things that are going to regularly keep us out of the office. If I can use a classical reference, there's this Gordian knot of trying to untangle return to work, hybrid, remote. How does that work? There's so many parts to this knot because an agency can say, well, we want everyone to be in person. But then the school district says, well, the kids are going to be out of school for a week. And, and then that's not going to be a compatible solution. So there's so many intertangled elements in, in that. I think the, the key word to, to solving this knot is flexibility. Ultimately, that's uh, the only 
way we're going to sort of find some symbiotic place where, where things can work uh, and, and work well. I would say there's three elements to finding a solution and, and to driving that flexibility and ensuring that it has staying power as a solution. The three things that I'm talking about are we need HR and IT to work together. I think we need to make sure we don't have a two-class federal workforce, and I think we need to have a culture that ensures that whatever policies are going to have staying power. When we started to have these major cyber breaches, and then, you know, we're probably going back, you know, 10, five years back, they said, okay, the IT security and IT, they need to coordinate, they need to have some interlock, regular touch bases, they, you can't buy some new technology without an IT security people vetting it. Well, that, that's going to have to be the same going forward with HR policy. I would be hesitant if I were an IT leader in government to launch some brand new technology that is requires someone to be at a keyboard in a specific place only to be able to access. So I think there needs to be some nexus where there's a true dialogue at the policy level between HR and IT. And that's at the top, at the big P policy. Obviously, we're seeing the White House is putting things out but also in the policy of just managers and in their teams and their HR partners and, and how that comes together. So that really, that interlock is, is critical. The second part I mentioned is we can't have two classes and, and that really flows from that HR policy interlock. We, we can't say, okay, there's a group of people who their work can be completely flexible and other people, maybe they need to work in a skiff maybe they're in a building security, maybe they have some other roles that require in-person presence, and then there's other people whose roles offer a great deal of flexibility. What we can't allow is, is to have this two-tiered structure because that's gonna lead to burnout, it's gonna lead to questions about compensation, it's gonna lead to all kinds of derivative policies. So when we think about someone, we would say, well, their work is in a skiff, how could we possibly offer them flexibility? I think we might wanna say, well, how much of their work actually needs to take place in the confines of that how much is they're they're doing training for an IT certification they're filling out forms and paperwork they're listening to a division meeting if you can schedule those types of other tasks maybe someone who originally was a 5 day required in a, in a specific location now goes to some other number and, and the last thing you know is is culture and that's going to be the glue that brings it all together. If we say, well, we want schedule flexibility, we need to make sure that that's a grassroots culture that your employees say they have certain things, they wanna be able to go to the carpool line and pick up their child, or they wanna be able to have lunch with their aged relative or, or what have you. That's grassroots schedule flexibility. An astroturf would be management saying, we want everyone checking their emails at 10 o'clock at night under the guise of flexibility because work now happens over 24 hours. So that would be an unfortunate development and that's gonna cause friction in, in, as we build these plans. So I think we really need to look at the policy level, all these, these three different areas, the interlock of HR and IT, making sure we're mindful about the two class uh, system and avoiding that, and then, and then a culture that's gonna make sure that everything that we're doing has staying power. A lot of the organizations across the government have realized tremendous benefits from the IT modernization and transformation efforts that they undertook before COVID even started, not anticipating COVID, but realizing these benefits. How is that fitting into the remote work environment and the, the three prongs that you just laid out there, Stephen? Francis, I mean, that's just it. We, we, it's, what we saw is there was a lot of IT modernization that took place, and had it not taken place, 
we wouldn't have been able to have done what we've been able to do. I think we need to look at investing in our workforce in a new way. We need to look at how our offices are organized. And, and we also want to make sure that we have employees who feel that they're empowered in how they live their lives, how they want to work, and they feel that their voice is being heard. I bring that all together into one catch-all term, human-centered IT modernization. If we go back to a world to say, oh, there's this new IT service, if we put our data over here, we'll, we'll have more insights and in AI and we'll have some new capabilities or lower latency. You know, these are all the buzzwords that drove IT purchasing for a long time. But in none of those conversations did we hear, oh, it actually makes people work in a, in a smarter way or actually it enables people to avoid the commute on the Legion Bridge. That was never a factor. What we realized with the pandemic is it has to be a factor because with the pandemic, if we didn't put IT at the service of our employees, no work could have possibly happened. So when I think about the modernization that has to take place, it has to be human-centered. Otherwise, it will fail. You know, at home, our employees just looking at that small webcam and the microphone on their laptop, is there an expectation that maybe we can elevate the technology that some of these workers are using so that they feel better, feel more confident when they're being remote? When you have a group of people who are in an office and some people are there in person, some people are not, do we have the technology to make those people who aren't there feel a little closer or are they just a three inch square on the other end of a wall somewhere? Obviously, Zoom feels very strongly about enabling some of our collaboration spaces and rooms to really bring you know the remote people and the in-person people to a level of parity. And I think that's gonna be key. I think when we talk about phone uh, and chat, those are other areas where we haven't seen a lot of movement in government, but we do know that there is gonna be a strong acceleration in adoption with two specific trends involving phone and chat. The first would be for phone, is there an ability for my desk phone in an office to go with me no matter where I am on planet Earth? So if I'm traveling for, for a work duty, if I'm at home, if I'm at a conference, if I'm in the office, I should be reachable in the same way no matter what. And I think that a lot of agencies are looking at modernizing in that way. And the other area is chat for short form, quick, instantaneous communication. It used to be, let me just tap Francis on the shoulder across the hall. Now we're seeing, and it's not a generational thing also, it's, it's really spanning all of the four or five generations we have in the federal workforce um, to be able to commu communicate quickly and in ways that really allow the mission to move forward in, in, a, in an easier way. Because a lot of the folks that say, you know what, this whole work from home hasn't worked, there's delays here, if, if you want to renew something, if you want to get some permit or, or whatever, it, the, it used to take three months, now it takes six. The challenge is the technology hasn't come to enable the productivity that some of our remote people really require. And, and if we don't allow it, we'll have a, an upset workforce uh, or people looking elsewhere. And I think that's really the challenge. What is the next generation beyond what the way that we think about remote work today? What's on the horizon for somebody who's thinking, okay, I get what it looks, what remote work looks like in 2022. What's beyond that that I should be thinking about today? What we need to look at is how are the information assets that we need to interact with or what data that we need to obtain and how can we obtain that information in a more efficient way. We've seen with 
the, the, the unfortunate uh, building situation collapse in, in Miami. We've seen infrastructure renewal be a top priority in the legislative field. How do we do and inspect all of this aged infrastructure? How do we prevent rock slides or wildfires? A lot of that is through the hard and diligent work of experts. But the problem you know, with something like that is how do we bring experts to a location? And that becomes very difficult. It's a lot easier to bring video and data and sensors to an expert located elsewhere. And, and that's just the tip of, of the spear sort of, sort of as examples. Because when you think about, you know, when you expand that, you might say, well, we can also work to break down some of the silos of government. Because instead of simply collaborating with the people in your office, maybe there's a cross-agency collaboration that would be really improved by bringing uh, people together in, in a sort of a constant video connection uh, where they're able to work jointly together across agencies, across buildings, across job sites, and, and, and work on, on priorities together. It's a lot easier than rearranging people and, 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 and putting people for six months in some other location or what have you. So I think that as we look at the art of the possible, there's just so much innovation that we can do in these areas. Stephen Ellis of Zoom, thanks very much for the conversation and for sponsoring today's show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put this show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. You can subscribe to the Daily Scoop podcast everywhere you get your shows, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and many more places. The leader of the Defense Digital Service, Katie Olson, is on the show with me tomorrow. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose, saying thanks very much for listening.